This is episode number two of Building Optimal Radio. I am Jared Gossett. We have a great show in store for you today. We're interviewing Dennis Dixon. Dennis has been building both commercial and residential projects since 1984. He's built over 300 custom homes and remodels. Dennis is one of the more prominent leaders in the industry, a consultant, author, and speaker on the national level. Most relevant to our story today, Dennis is the author of the book, Finding Hidden Profits, a guide for custom builders, remodelers, and architects. For me, this book is more or less a Bible of how to run your business in this industry. It's one of those books that's almost not worth highlighting because if you're like me, you just pretty much highlight the entire thing, turn the entire book yellow. We get into some great ideas in this interview today, and I can almost guarantee there's at least one nugget of wisdom for every one of us. Also, before we get started, make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you get notifications on new episodes. You can also find us on Facebook, Building Optimal, and Instagram, at Building Optimal. Send us your feedback there. Tell us what type of content you want to hear, and we'll try to make it happen. Enjoy. Dennis, you released a second edition of your book for builders and remodelers, Finding Hidden Profits, last year. For those of us who don't yet know your book, tell us a little bit about it. It's called Finding Hidden Profits, a guide for custom builders, remodelers, and architects. And it's a book that I wrote. The first edition came out in 2000. The second one in 2017, January, and it's a compilation of things I learned being a builder, remodeler, and a design build person to streamline my business and to service the clients in a more efficient fashion so that everybody stays happy, they get value for their dollar spent, and my company and myself can make money. All right. Very good. Well, on my end, at least, I read it and I found it to be one of the most helpful books that I have ever read in the business. I think it should be more or less considered the Bible for custom home builders. Thank you. So tell me, what's the biggest takeaway from the book that you want builders to see and implement in their businesses? Well, my background in the last decade, I've done a lot of consulting and coaching and advising, sometimes for large subcontracting companies, sometimes for builders, sometimes remodelers, and even a few architectural companies. And I've even been an owner advocate on some large developments to make sure that the owner and the developer are getting what they want out of the architectural firm, the engineering firm, and the contractors that they hire. And it gets really confusing about how much can be left off the table or put under the table. And then miscommunication leads to legalities that nobody wants to be involved in. Well, the biggest takeaway from the book is that I'm going to sound like a school marm, but if you can't do A-grade paperwork with the plans, the specifications, and your contract, then you shouldn't do the project. And it boils down to, from my experience, I do not want to negotiate with the owner for 10 times during a week's time about what they're getting and what they're not getting because it says plumbing fixtures, Delta. But I never explained to them or I never detailed in the specifications that the half bath gets a Delta 501B in chrome and the master bathroom gets polished brass and that the guest room gets polished silver or dull brass or something. 
the more you can get on paper with regard to facts, figures, model numbers, specifications, things like that, the better off you're going to be. And if I might add something here, in my experience, and this goes back to probably 1995, I think was the first time I was asked to be an expert witness for a legal case. And that doesn't mean I'm jumping on Perry Mason or some of those other legal shows you've seen on TV, but an attorney would contact me and say, please review the facts and figures of this case, do a little bit of investigating, and then I need you to write an opinion about our case. And so many times the builder has great intention, the the remodeler, the architect, but they have failed when it came to the paperwork aspects, which comes down to proof. And I've learned many, many times, both firsthand experience and seeing it as a result, because sometimes I'm not testifying in court, I'm just writing opinions, but then I'll keep in contact with the attorneys, what's going on? And they'll tell me, Dennis, we lost because of ABC. And when you go to court, the one with the most paperwork wins. And builders will tell me, Dennis, I didn't get into this to become a paperwork expert. I didn't get into this to become an estimating expert. And the truth of the matter is, if you're running the company, hire someone to do the paperwork. Hire someone to do the management and then bill it into your contractual prices. And you can be in the field, but you need someone to run the company. Ideally, if you own the company, you should be the manager and you shouldn't be pounding nails or doing paint touch-ups or writing up change orders. That should be your superintendents. That should be your people in the field. And you should be saving your time for running the company, negotiating bids, making sure the estimates are good and, and overseeing everything. And that comes back to finding hidden profits. A lot of builders are so busy, they'll do a lousy job writing up the change order when they could have made $1,500 on a change order and they're making 210. So they've given away $1,290 because they are too tired from pounding nails and cleaning up job sites. And construction is a very difficult business. Amen. In my experience, it seems like so many of us only learn the lesson that you're teaching right now after some really horrific thing, or at least at a minimum, very unpleasant experiences transpired on a project. And so many of us would be better off to have that information and implement it in a much earlier time in our business. Well, if I can make a little comparison here and a moniker phrase that someone may take away from our interview is that I want you to envision that you're building for your grandmother and that you want everything down on paper so that when grandma comes to you and says, Dennis, uh, what are we doing with regard to appliances? We're doing general electric, right? Grandma, let's dig out the specs and see. And you have them filed alphabetically. They're typed up on Microsoft Word. And under appliances, it gives the appliance name, the model number, and the finish. And even little notes associated with it, that this is a double-door oven, that this is a convection oven, that this is a dishwasher that does not have a heated drying system, which is something that a lot of the units do not have in this day and age. And when I say specifications, I think a lot of people get confused because they think of some big architectural plan booklet that comes with the blueprints. I'm talking about writing up your own specs that are alphabetical, that start with appliances, building permit, 
cabinetry, countertops, drywall, electrical service, electrical fixtures, all the way down to skylights and windows. And you're just putting little bullet point nuances under each one of these categories. But you're spelling out which models they're getting, which finishes they're getting. And you don't have to modify this thing all that much for every new job because 90% of it kind of stays the same like concrete and driveways and footings and roofing. And maybe you have to change the color of the roofing that you're putting on. And maybe you're doing a raised seam metal roof instead of an asphalt 50-year or lifetime, that's sort of a contradiction in terms, lifetime finish roof. But anyway, I'll be quiet. I'm going to let you get back to the questions. I love that, the grandma rule. I haven't heard that one before. It's funny, though, because you mentioned how important specs are. And one thing that we've started implementing in our business is not just we typically think about specs and we think about what's included. What we've started doing is also outlining what's excluded, because I think that that is a big opportunity also to help clear communication, both what's included and then also think about the things that are excluded. You know, if we were in school right now, I'd have the teacher get out a gold star and put it on your forehead. The other thing that I like to tell people, and I'm saying it in a less eloquent way that you just said, is that I like to tell them what they're getting and not getting. Right. During the plan process, maybe the plans call for a six-inch thick concrete driveway, and due to cost valuation, you're going to cut it back to four inches. Well, you think, well, the owners know we've done that. Well, no, you need to put that in the part of the specifications under driveway. And then you have a bullet point that on January 4th, 2018, Betty and Sam Jones allowed us to change the driveway from six inches to four inches to save money, period. This in no way impacts the engineering or the safety of the home, and it still meets construction code, period. So that six months from now, they come back and say, Dennis, what happened to our six-inch driveway? You're not going to have to have an argument about it because it's spelled out in the specs. Let me ask you this. In most markets, there's a ton of competition. How does a builder separate himself from the pack? Without being sarcastic, there's A, B, and C. And A is having a contract that will outshine your competition, including, and the specifications are part of the contract, and you want to sit down and go over that contract with the owner. The other issue is you explain to them that we've had a lot of experience And we've tailored our paperwork and our managerial styles to fit what clients want and to keep them happy. And I know you're busy. We're really busy. But we have thorough paperwork that is going to detail what you're getting and not getting and show them your sample specifications. And most of your competition is not going to have that. And they may bully it and say, well, that's why Dixon's more expensive. You know, he's got those specification things. Well, on a a $210,000 remodel and somebody else's at two hundred eight, I don't think $2,000 makes a difference, especially when you have detailed specs. And if it is going to make a difference, maybe you can make an adjustment and meet that other price bid. And again, I know people in the audience are going to be rolling their eyes when I say this, but I learned many, many years ago, if the project priority is money, that I probably don't want to take on the project. If they're looking for quality and a good relationship and smooth sailing, and yeah, the money's important, but it's not the primary driving force because people that are worried about the money, they're going to worry about whether you're using 200 nails or 192 nails, and do they get a credit on the eight nails you didn't use? It just becomes difficult. 
Well, I can echo that. We have seen that when money is the primary driver, and oftentimes it can be, when that is the case, it doesn't mean that they're bad clients, but it means that it's going to be a much more difficult build. And from our experience, it's so much better to pass up a possible build that's going to end up being a really challenging build than the opposite. Before I do an estimate, before I really get into the down and dirty gritty with a client, I have about 10 client test questions to test the water and to see if you should dive in. And one of them is, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, have you built a remodel before? And if they tell me no, that is a big roadblock because I don't want to educate them about how the process went. When they tell me, yes, they've remodeled before that le- or built or both, that leads to a question of, hey, what are some things that you'd like to see changed with this project from your experience with the other remodeling and new constructs? And there is this cornucopia of bad vegetables that come spilling out about, oh, our builder never wrote anything down. Our builder never showed up on time. The job site was filthy. The dumpster never got emptied. There was trash all over the job. They used two by fours instead of two by six, and they made a mistake. I mean, that commentary is going to go on and on and on. Well, then you can address those little snippets. The other question I asked them is, Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, I need to get a take from you what your priority is on this project. Is it the overall cost, the money? Is it the quality of the finished project? Or is it the time that it's going to take to to organize and complete the project? Because they're not mutually exclusive. Tell me which one is your number one priority, and then we will know how to address this project. And I mentioned a moment ago that if the driving force is money, That doesn't mean I'm going to walk away from the job, but it means that I'm going to tell the clients that, you know what, you told me it was your priority was money and you're wasting, you're spending way more money on plumbing fixtures because I can do a great job for you with X brand and they have a lifetime warranty instead of going with expensive growy or Sterling or or some other fancy plumbing fixture. If they say, oh no, Dennis, we have to have those. Well, you told me it was about the money. I'm trying to save you money. And that helps in the relationship. The last but not least question here is, I try to educate my clients that everything isn't about cost per square foot. My best example is in building the garage, nobody lives in the garage, but the appraiser, the homeowners, the architects never want to talk about the square footage in the garage and is it included in the overall contract price? Well, if if you're going to submit a price on a new construct that's $300,000 and the house is 3,000 square foot with a 900 square foot garage, you need to divide 300,000 by 3,900 instead of 3,000 to get that $100 a square foot because then you're going to be lower at the 3,900. The other issue is I tell homeowners, what's the difference between your simplest square footage in the home, like Billy or Sally's bedroom? And let's go on the plus side of of what's not in the garage first. Hey, the garage doesn't have carpet. The garage isn't going to have a ceiling fan. The garage isn't going to have a closet or closet rod and shelves or a closet door. And it's probably going to have a window. Well, let's go back to the garage. The garage probably is going to have a window. It's not going to have floor coverings. It's going to have a slab floor. But it's going to have five-eighths fire jip instead of half-inch. So that's going to be pricier. It's got to have electrical. It's got to have lighting. You're either going to have one, two, or three garage doors with openers, 
that are going to way offset the price. And in every, and I'm, I'm telling you, every project I've done, because we always do a post-project analysis, the garage square footage is more expensive than the simple bedroom footage in the house. And that's something to really communicate to your clients that shows them that you really know what you're talking about. And it gives you a leg up on the competition. And coupled with the specifications, I think you're probably going to win the job, even if your price is a little bit higher. I think we could do an entire episode just on this whole cost per foot debate. And it's Pandora's box for a lot of us, I think. So I may have to get you back on the show just for a cost per foot discussion in the future. I'd love it. Let me ask you this, put you on the spot for a second. Sorry about that. But if you would, give us three simple, actionable improvements that you think most of us could be making in our businesses that we could implement immediately and see big payoffs. First is make sure that after you've kind of cleared the way, you actually have made a decision to provide an estimate and, and do one for yourself. Do you want to give the estimate to the owner? That's a whole nother 10-paragraph debate discussion right there. But don't jump in and prepare an estimate and then get frustrated when you don't get the job when you could have covered that at the beginning. You may even ask for a deposit for the estimate that is applied towards the first construction draw should you get the job. If you don't get the job, then at least you're compensated somewhat. This may or may not work in your, in your market, but you could certainly try it. But number one is try to get paid for your estimates. Second part of number one here is make sure you're going to do a thorough estimate because it's going to show up things that have plan mistakes, things that are incorrect. There might even be things in the plans that the owners have told you they didn't want them or they told the architect, no, we, we really aren't going to do that. We're going to do this. And there was some miscommunication. So doing a great job with the estimate is the first start. And if you can't do a good job with the estimate because the plans aren't done, oh, oh, Dennis, the plans are done, but give us a ballpark estimate. I'm not doing it. And I'm not going to be sarcastic and say, yeah, between 100000 and $2 million, we'll hone it down once your plans are done. I'm not going to be silly like that. Portion number two is to have a thorough, detailed contract that is friendly and you understand it and the owner will understand it, and any independent person that would read it, it's in simple, plain, straightforward English. It's not filled with a bunch of legalese. And I even have a a contract available on my website that can get someone started if they're interested. And number three is make sure you do a great job with supervision and note-taking, and that's going to lead to change orders and allowances that are managed better and will make you money. And the third issue there with supervision, this goes down to the specs also. The owners perceive that we are going to have an employee, a supervisor, a a field superintendent, or, or even you, the contractor, on their job from seven to five, six days a week and then cleaning up there on Sunday. And you need to explain to them how often you're going to be on the job, how often your superintendent is, how the work is going to be supervised and carried out because you don't want to start off on a bad foot that they get angry that they show up at the job at 10 a.m. on a Tuesday morning and they can't find you or one of your employees. And those are the top three. Okay, I love it. 
Fill us in on one of your construction horror stories. What went wrong and what was the takeaway? Well, the the construction horror story that's the worst one of my life happened to me. I had a lot surveyed in a golf course community, and it was on a steep residential lot in an existing subdivision. And I had bought this lot and owned it, I think, for about two years before I was starting a spec house on it. Well, I had the engineers come out, survey it, and mark all four corners. And it was about half an acre, and we started building on the lot. And my excavation contractor told me, Dennis, I I can't seem to find the electrical tap and the sewer tap and the water tap digging up at the street, and they're not shown where they're on the civil plans. And I said, wow. So we investigated that, and I went down, and I saw the head of the building department, and he kind of patted me on the head. I was a new builder, and he said, "Come, come with me, young pup. We'll go out to your job site. He was there two minutes looking at the sewer manholes in the center of the street. And he looked at me and he said, you're building on the wrong lot. Oh, no. (laughs) It turned out okay. I went to see my attorney, but we had already poured the slab and we were framing. So we'd, we'd done excavation, footings, backfill, concrete slab, built the stem wall, did the underground plumbing and HVAC and electrical conduits. So, and we started framing. So, you know, I had $30,000 into this $300,000 house already. It may have even been a little bit more than that. Well, I called my attorney. I told him what happened. And he said, let's call the surveyor. I called the surveyor and they were like, oh my goodness, let's see if we can resolve this. It turned out that there were three lots, A, B, and C, and I was on B. That was the actual lot I was supposed to be building on that I owned. But these three lots all had the same dimensions. Uh, One of them varied. Uh, like 292 feet from the street down to the golf course. The other one was like 291 feet, eight inches. And no one had looked at this before the surveyors had done the four-point selection. Well, the action was that we called the owner, who was a gentleman that lived in Las Vegas, and he kind of laughed on the phone and he said, hey, this isn't so bad. I wanted to build a vacation home on that lot anyway over in Flagstaff to get out of the Vegas heat. And maybe I'll come look at the house and I just may buy it. Or worst case, we'll just trade lots. They're the same size. And I don't think that's a bad deal. And if you pay for the paperwork, we're all set. And that's what happened. We traded lots and I paid for the paperwork. Wow. I bet that provided for a few sleepless nights. It did. And you know what the lesson is from it? Even if I did things by the book, I didn't skip the survey. I wasn't some cheapskate that was going to look for a little old rebar that had been put down when they built the subdivision, you know, that was 25 years old, something like that. And I still got burned. And that's why we have to supervise subs and suppliers and we have to double check and people hire us for our managerial skills. And the rumors that flew around town after this happened to me were terrible. And people would point at me in a restaurant and giggle, and I'd walk over to them and say, is there something I can help you with? And they'd say, yeah, aren't you the guy that built the house on the wrong lot? I said, I sure did, because the surveyors surveyed the wrong lot. And then they'd look at me like, oh, okay. You're responsible for a lot of things, being a builder, contractor, remodeler, and architect. You know what you're mentioning reminds me of a philosophy I have. I welcome your opinion on it. I believe you can probably, through good processes, good management and expertise in this business, you can eliminate 99% of the uncertainty, the risk, 
but statistically you can't get it all out. And there's still that 1% that remains at the way probability works out if you are in this business long enough, that 1% will pop up from time to time, no matter how good of a builder or operator you are. And you have to simply be able to respond in a productive manner to those events when they do arise. I really appreciate you saying that. And the other thing with this is I've seen this with my legal expertise thing. You always need to tell the truth. And if you've made a mistake, own up to it trying to hide it, minimize it, blame it on somebody else. All it does is cover you with more mud. Yep. So true. Honesty is the best policy. What are you up to these days? What does 2018 have in store for you? 2018, I'm pretty excited about. I've already got 15 speaking seminars booked, including the International Building Show. I've got a couple of things I'm doing for Kitchen Bath Industry or NKBA. I'm doing my two talks at JLC, Journal of Light Construction, Providence, Rhode Island, and Portland that I do every year. And Journal of Light Construction is a great magazine. If you're not familiar with it, buy it. And it's not expensive. Everything in it is for a professional builder and contractor and even architectural help in there. But 2018 lays out for me. I'm really not building anymore, and I actually let my license expire in 2017. Didn't want to pay the liability insurance, et cetera, but I still have my commercial license because I built and managed several commercial projects here in my later years, and that's taken on my time along with doing consulting and speaking. And if anyone would like some additional information, you can go to my website, which is Dad the Builder. Dad is Dennis A. Dixon, www.dadthebuilder.com. And you can look at some additional stories in there. And I actually have some other building commentary and educational stipends, along with some paperwork that if someone's interested can help them. Where are the different places where we can find the book? The primary place where you're going to get your best deal is at builderbooks.com because if you're a member of NAHB, you get a discount, but it's also available on Amazon and other websites, and you can also buy it through several other book distributors like Craftsman Books. They're out of uh, Carmel or somewhere in California, but if you go into Amazon, type in Finding Hidden Profits. Dennis Dixon or both, and you should be able to find the book. The other thing I was going to say is the first edition of the book, you can buy for a dollar. You can buy a used copy. The information hasn't changed that much. It's just been updated, and the book has more information and more details in the updated version versus the other. But I think they're both good, and I won't be offended if somebody buys an old edition and reads it and gets success out of it. That's what I'm aiming for. Dennis, you are an absolute wealth of expertise. I am excited to post this out for our audience. I think people will get a lot from it. And I'm hoping to have you on again soon to dig deeper and talk about more. I'd love to, Jared. This has been very nice and and you're a good interviewer. Dennis, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.